Hi, this is Mercedes, and you're listening to Word of Hope Christian Church in New Braunfels, Texas. Hi, everyone, and welcome once again. I'm Pastor Tim with Word of Hope Christian Church in New Braunfels, Texas. And it's my joy to be with you today is Sunday, September 25th. Before we start our sermon today, I'd like to do something a little different. Normally, we have an opening prayer after I introduce the sermon a little bit more and we read some scripture. But today, I just would like to start with prayer. Can we do that? Thanks. Join me, won't you? Gracious Heavenly Father, we praise your holy name. Lord, thank you. Thank you for everything. Thank you for the very breath we have today. Thank you that we could come together and hear your word today. Thank you for the word. Thank you for loving us before we ever knew we needed it. Thank you for your amazing grace, which reaches lower than our worst mistake. Lord, I just thank you for all that have come to listen and watch today and for those that are in person. Lord, I just ask your blessing on their lives. Whatever they're going through today, Father, I pray that you'd meet their need and that they would draw near to you. Lord, I thank you for the honor that you've given me to serve at Word of Hope Christian Church. This is your ministry, and we just want to reach people for you, Lord, to see your kingdom grow. So, Lord, and then also to see them grow. But, Lord, we're just grateful, and I am so humbled to be able to share this word today that you've already provided for us. Help us to understand it and apply it in the mighty name of Jesus. And everybody said, Amen and Amen. Welcome once again to our sermon series, God Goes to War. Today is part six, so we're jumping back a little bit. Last week, we were talking in Revelation 12, and I said that, yes, Satan is a dangerous enemy. And yes, he's not tame. And yes, he's out to get you. But by the blood of the lamb and the power of your testimony, he ain't got no teeth. Today, I'm going to be speaking with you from Revelation chapter 8, verses 1 to 5. And the sermon title is, We Are the Army of God. If you have your Bible or Bible app, open them up right now to Revelation chapter 8. It's the last book in the New Testament, all the way to the right. And let's read together. Follow along as I read Revelation 8, 1 to 5. When the Lamb broke the seventh seal on the scroll, there was silence throughout heaven for about half an hour. I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and they were given seven trumpets. Then another angel with a gold incense burner came and stood at the altar, and a great amount of incense was given to him to mix with the prayers of God's people as an offering on the gold altar before the throne. The smoke of the incense mixed with the prayers of God's holy people ascended up to God from the altar where the angel had poured them out. Then the angel filled the incense burner with fire from the altar and threw it down on the earth. A thunder crashed, lightning flashed, and there was a terrible earthquake. Harry Emerson Fosdick told the tale of a little church on the coast of England that was ruined in a hurricane. The congregation was poor and didn't have the money to rebuild. Then one day, A representative from the British Admiralty came to the preacher and asked if they intended to reconstruct their church building. When the preacher explained that they couldn't, the other man replied, Well, if you don't rebuild it, we will. The spire on your church is on all our charts and maps. It is the landmark by which our ships set their course. What that representative of the British Navy was saying is this. That church was important to us. Look throughout the book of Revelation. And that's the same message Jesus gives us. You are the church, and you are important to him. How many of you remember singing that favorite children's song, 
Jesus loves me. You know, it's a simple but powerful reminder of how Jesus feels about us. In fact, let's sing it together right now. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. Well done. Good job. Now, according to that song, how do we know how Jesus loves us? Answer is, the Bible says, it tells me so. That's right. In the same way, we know Jesus loves us because Revelation tells us so. Check this out. Revelation 1.5. All glory to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by shedding his blood for us. Revelation 1.6. He has made us a kingdom of priests for God his Father. Revelation 7.14. He has given us robes made white in the blood of the Lamb. Revelation 7.17. For the Lamb on the throne will be their shepherd, and he will lead us to springs of life-giving water, and God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Revelation 12.11. And they have defeated Satan by the blood of the Lamb and by our testimony. Revelation 14.1. We have his name and his Father's name written on our foreheads. And lastly, Revelation 14.3. And we... Sing a wonderful new song in front of the throne of God. And it goes on and on and on. Yes, Jesus loves us and the book of Revelation tells us so. Now, there are many prophetic teachers out there who will say, yeah, Jesus loves you, the church, but not as much as he loves physical Israel. Do you remember last week when we were talking about that powerful prophecy from Daniel 9? That prophecy is called the 70 weeks prophecy in which God accurately told his people the date the temple would be rebuilt and the exact date when the coming Messiah Jesus would begin his ministry. But right at the end of that prophecy, just before the last seven years of the prophecy, these prophetic teachers stopped the clock. They put in a time gap and they call it the church age because they believe the church was not God's most important focus in the prophecy. They say that physical Israel was. And so they say when Jesus comes back, the Gentile church will be raptured out and physical Israel will be saved. What these prophetic teachers are telling us is that the church was an afterthought with God, that the Gentile church is not loved as much as the physical Jews were. To their way of thinking, physical Israel is the apple of God's eye. Oh, they will say that the church is loved, but not that much. Now that's a bizarre interpretation of Daniel 9 because the 70 weeks prophecy doesn't even give a hint of such a thing called a time gap. It didn't exist. Nor does that prophecy speak of God stopping the clock for the sake of physical Israel. Folks, you got to read it. Go back and check out Daniel 9. You'll see what I mean. Part of the reason these prophetic teachers are so convinced of the importance of physical Israel is because Revelation 7 talks about a group of people called the 144,000. Maybe you've heard of that. Now, open your Bible. Revelation 7 now. Let's look at 4b through 8 starts out this way. And I heard how many were marked with the seal of God. 144,000 were sealed from all tribes of Israel. From Judah, 12,000. From Reuben, 12,000. From Gad, 12,000. 
from Asher, 12,000, from Naphtali, 12,000, from Manasseh, 12,000, from Simeon, 12,000, from Levi, 12,000, from Issachar, 12,000, from Zebulun, 12,000, from Joseph, 12,000, and Benjamin, 12,000. Now that sounds pretty inclusive, right? The 144,000 are said to be from every tribe, and they are the sons of Israel. So, these 144,000 must be physical Israelites. Not so fast, folks. There are a few problems with that interpretation, and one of the most obvious has to do with the tribes that are listed. Did you catch it? Did you see where it read the tribe of Joseph in verse 8? Have you ever heard of a tribe of Joseph? I hadn't before this sermon. But on three occasions, the Bible does refer to a tribe of Joseph, Numbers 13.11, Numbers 36.5, and Revelation 7.8. But in those contexts, the tribe of Joseph is referring to either the tribe of Ephraim or Manasseh, or the house of Joseph, which included Ephraim and Manasseh. Regardless, the bottom line is that there is no tribe of Joseph ever found in the list of tribes that make up physical Israel. In addition, Two of the tribes of Israel are missing from that list. One is Ephraim, Joseph's secondborn, and the other is Dan. There's no rational reason why those two tribes should be missing. So what's going on here? Well, here's what's going on. The 144,000 are not physical Israel. They are a spiritual Israel. It's all about the church. In Romans 2, 28 and 29, Paul addresses the Christians who were Jews in Rome, and he warns them, for you are not a true Jew just because you were born of Jewish parents or because you have gone through the ceremony of circumcision. No, a true Jew is one whose heart is right with God. A true circumcision is not merely obeying the letter of the law. Rather, it is a change of heart produced by the Spirit. Being a spiritual Jew is what concerns God, and the circumcision that counts now is not physical, it's spiritual. Back in the Old Testament, circumcision was done to the males of Israel. It was the mark of the covenant. I hope I don't have to explain that to you because I really don't want to go there today. But the old circumcision was the removal of physical skin from the body. The circumcision that counts now is a circumcision of the skin of sin around our hearts. So a real Jew is not one outwardly, but inwardly. Now, real Jews are every believer, Gentile or Jew, who are part of God's new covenant. Later in Ephesians 2, verses 11 and 12, Paul writes to the Gentile church in that city and says, Remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised, done by hand in the flesh. At that time you were without the Messiah, in other words, they didn't have a Savior, excluded from the citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, with no hope and without God in the world. Notice what Paul is telling these Gentile Christians. He's saying that at one time, they didn't have Jesus or God or hope or citizenship in Israel. Then Paul writes in the next verse, verse 13, But now you've been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you've been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. In other words, we as Gentiles were once separated from Christ and God and Israel. But that's not true anymore. You and I are now part of a new and spiritual Israel, and the Israelites of the Old Covenant are not more important than you are. You, Christ's church, are now the apple of God's eye. Now, if a physical Jew ever converts to Christ, 
That's an exciting thing. But outside of Christ, an unconverted Jew has no hope and no second chance. So Jesus loves you, the church, this I know, because Revelation tells me so. But as much as God loves you, Revelation doesn't sugarcoat what might happen to you and I because of our faith. Revelation talks about Christians being jailed, mistreated, beaten, and even killed. Revelation 6-9, there John tells us, When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw under the altar of the souls all who had been martyred for the word of God for being faithful in their testimony. Remember what Jesus said in John 16-33? Here on earth you'll have many trials and sorrows. In other words, we're going to have trouble. In 329 AD in the city of Nicaea, there was an important church meeting called the Nicaean Council that took place. Of the 318 delegates attending, fewer than 12 had not lost an eye or lost a hand or did not limp on a leg lamed by torture for their Christian faith. Now, I've said this before and I'm going to say it again. Revelation drives home the fact that we Christians are not saved so that we can live a pampered life. Jesus didn't save us so we could have a great family, home, car, 401ks, etc. Not that God won't do stuff like that for us, but that's not why we were saved. Jesus saved us because we were lost in sin and we deserved to go to hell. C.S. Lewis once said, As perhaps you know, I haven't always been a Christian. I didn't go to religion to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of port would do that. If you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. What? Why would Lewis say that Christianity would make me uncomfortable? Because, folks, Christianity is going to tell us what we don't want to hear. And also because the world is not going to like you. And why won't the world like you? Because the world doesn't like Jesus. And why doesn't the world like Jesus? Because Jesus tells the world something it doesn't want to hear. And that is, y'all sinners and y'all going to hell. Simple as that. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5 tells you and I, once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. But God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you've been saved. Now, folks, I just don't know any other way to tell you this. You know that I'm not a fire and brimstone kind of preacher and I don't guilt anybody into anything. I just can't do that. And the reason I don't do that is because that is not what you need to hear. You need to hear that Jesus loves you, not because you deserve his love, but because you need his love and you need his forgiveness too. That is what Christianity is all about. Now, one last thing, and this is the really cool part. Revelation 19 verses 11 to 13 tell us, Then I saw heaven opened and a white horse was standing there. Its rider was named Faithful and True, for he judges fairly and wages a righteous war. His eyes were like flames of fire, and on his head were many crowns. A name was written on him that no one understood except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his title was the Word of God. Who is John describing there? Well, if you said Jesus, you'd be right. Now notice verse 14. 
the armies of heaven dressed in the finest of pure white linen followed him on white horses. Who do you think that these guys might be? That's us, folks. That's the church. And we know that because this is the kind of terminology God uses of Christians. Revelation 19.8 says, For the fine linen represents the good deeds of God's holy people. Revelation 3.5a says, All who are victorious will be clothed in white. So do you know what that means? That means I get a white horse. That's cool. We are the army of God. We are the warriors called to follow Jesus into battle against Satan. And 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5 tells us how we wage this war. We are human, Paul writes, but we don't wage war as humans do. We use God's mighty weapons, not worldly weapons, to knock down the strongholds of human reasoning and to destroy false arguments. We destroy every proud obstacle that keeps people from knowing God. We capture their rebellious thoughts and teach them to obey Christ. In other words, we're not carrying swords, bows and arrows, and other weapons of war. Our war is a spiritual war against the gates of hell with the intention of capturing the hearts of people held under Satan's power and influence. But of all the weapons we have, perhaps the most powerful is talked about in our text, Revelation 8.1. Let's go there and read it again. When the Lamb broke the seventh seal on the scroll, there was silence throughout heaven for about half an hour. Listen. Do you hear it? Do you hear the silence? Did you sense a little anticipation there? You know, maybe you thought I was going to do something, but I didn't. You expected that something was about to happen, right? That's what silence usually brings. Well, that's what Revelation is doing here. It's creating an atmosphere that says, pay attention. Something important is about to happen. There's something so significant that God wants to call your attention to it. So why is God trying to get our attention? Well, let's read the next verses, verses two through four. I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and they were given seven trumpets. Then another angel with a golden incense burner came and stood at the altar, and a great amount of incense was given to him to mix with the prayers of God's people as an offering on the gold altar before the throne. The smoke of the incense mixed with the prayers of God's holy people ascended up to God from the altar where the angel had poured them out. Notice here. An angel is in charge of the prayers of the saints. These prayers are not trusted to just anybody. Only an angel is allowed to bring them before the throne of God. And this angel holds these prayers in a golden incense burner. It's not brass, tin, or lead. Our prayers are held in an incense burner made of precious metal because our prayers are precious to God. And this angel brings your prayers before the very throne of God. They're not set on the floor before God. They're not echoing around the throne room. They are presented directly to God, and he pays personal attention to your individual prayers. Now notice what happens in verse 5. Then the angel filled the incense burner with fire from the altar and threw it down upon the earth. And thunder crashed, lightning flashed, and there was a terrible earthquake. Sorry, I didn't mean to raise my voice and scare you, but I did it on purpose. When God hears our prayers, he unleashes a power that we can't even begin to imagine. That's why God uses an imagery of power and might and even the terror that those prayers could bring. Beloved, we are soldiers of Christ. We are called to the battlefield against Satan and all his forces. And when we pray, the whole might of heaven is unleashed. 
During the 1800s, one of Napoleon's generals was preparing to attack an Austrian town with an army of 18,000 men. The Austrians were terrified. They were defenseless against such an attack, and they knew that they were going to face the very real prospect of slavery, death, or worse at the hands of the French. Faced with defeat and certain death, the town council called a hurried meeting and discussed their options. After much discussion, the dean of the church rose and said, My brothers, it is Easter Day. We have been reckoning our own strength, and that fails. Let us turn to God, ring the bells, and have service as usual, and leave the matter in God's hands. And you know what? That's exactly what they did. They went to church. They rang the church bells, put on their Sunday best, and gathered to worship God. When the services ended, the Austrians opened the church doors and looked over the walls and found the entire French army was gone. It turns out that when the French heard the church bells, they thought the bells were announcing the arrival of an entire Austrian army to defend that city, so they simply ran away. And so it was that in 1799, the Austrian town of Feldkirch was saved by praying and praising God. How cool is that? Beloved, that's the story of Revelation. Revelation tells us that God's people are faced with an enemy we cannot withstand. But we are the army of God, and our only hope comes in praise and prayer. And in the end, we win to the glory of God. And all his people said, Amen. Thanks for listening. Join us again next time for another encouraging message from God's Word. To find out more about our ministry, look us up on the web at www.whccnb.org. Word of Hope Christian Church. Real people. A real God. Real hope.